Please be seated. Good evening, everyone. I was starting to wonder if the sun was ever going to come back out, but it did. It's been out all day today. Happy Father's Day, uh, a few hours in advance to all the fathers in the room. Thank you for your commitment to your family. Uh, this summer, the lectionary takes us to the letter of Paul to the Romans, and so I'm going to do something that's fairly uncommon in the Episcopal Church, but I'm trying to teach a bit of a series on discipleship, because the letter of Romans has so much to say about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So, uh, without further ado, the, the, the topic of discipleship today is peace. So we're going to talk about the peace of a disciple. Now, I want to start with a claim, and that is this. We were made... For peace, it is hardwired into us to need a kind of inner equilibrium or satisfaction, a kind of peacefulness. Think about this. Have you ever met someone who wasn't? Have you ever met someone who said, you know, I'm really trying to find some inner chaos because there's too much peace in my life? Exactly. We're all after peace, right? Now, I bet some of you are old enough in this room to remember Woodstock. Who remembers Woodstock? <laughs> Maybe some of you were even there, or you wanted to go, but uh, your parents would not let you go. So, of course, Woodstock was 1969. It was a huge uh, music festival out in the Catskill Mountains in New York, and about almost half a million people showed up. And uh, does anyone remember uh, the, the poster for Woodstock? That, uh, did anyone remember that? The bright orange with the green guitar. Oh, wait a minute. Here it is. Remember that? Uh, it was a long time ago, wasn't it? But you see what it says on there? Three days of peace. And music. Three days of peace. Now, of course, peace in the Woodstock sense was all about, you know, getting along. And if we're honest, we'll admit that that was uh, often uh, helped by much uh, alcohol, intoxication, and psychedelic drugs, right? This is, this is the Woodstock notion of peace. And, of course, it had a lot to do with this sort of movement against the Vietnam War and nuclear disarmament and that sort of thing. But I think that the peace that we were made for is something a bit different. It's something deeper. It's an abiding sense that doesn't fleet away when the experience is gone. And it's a universal human longing for this peace. Think about all the ways that people try to pursue peace when you look at the world. Everyone is after it. New houses, new cars, new friends, new foods, new to-do lists, new experiences. Everyone is after peace, but it somehow, even in the pursuit of all those things, seems to evade us. That brilliant uh, thinker, C.S. Lewis, says this. Most people, if they really learn how to look into their own heart, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Psychologists have a, have a term for this. They call it the pleasure treadmill. And they call it that because you keep running in the same place after new pleasures and new experiences, thinking that they're going to bring ultimate peace, but you end up weary, and you find yourself in the same exact place, lacking true peace. Now, one alternative is despair. One alternative is to simply despair of ever having true 
peace in this world. I want to read you briefly from Wallace Stevens' poem, Sunday Morning, the protagonist. She says, But in contentment I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. Stevens continues, Death is the mother of beauty, hence from her alone shall come fulfillment to our dreams and our desires. Despair. See, he says, only at death will true peace finally come. So I want to ask, are these the only two options, the endless pursuit of pleasure or despair that we will never have peace? I want to suggest that there is another option. I want to suggest that underlying our need for completeness, for ultimate satisfaction is a need for peace with God. For peace with God. So you think about it like this. God created you, and thus he is the source of your life. So it makes perfect sense that there would be something in you, something deep, that longs to connect to the source of your life. There is a way. There is a way. And I want to discuss how it happens and what it means for our lives, especially as disciples of Jesus. Now, we're going to look at the passage in Romans, so if you want to follow along in your insert, that'll probably be very helpful. But first, I've got to give you a little bit of a background on what's going on in the letter to Romans, and I'll be, try to be as brief as possible, and it won't be a seminary lecture or anything like that. But we're starting in chapter 5. Well, Paul has spent four chapters, that, that amount of material, addressing kind of one big issue, and that was, here's what happened. The Jews in the early days of the church, in about the year 49, all got kicked out of Rome because there was an emperor who was irritated with them. So there would be, until he died, they were gone, and then they came back about five years later when that emperor died. So what happened was that Jewish followers of Jesus were all kicked out, and then there were Gentile, non-Jewish followers of Jesus who got to stay. And so when the Jews came back into Rome, they had to be incorporated back into the life of the church. It was a bit difficult, and there was some skirmishes about things. And basically the Jews and the, the Jewish followers of Jesus and the non-Jewish followers of Jesus are kind of getting into arguments about the best way to obey the Lord and who's doing better at pleasing God and obeying the law and so on and so forth. So Paul's been addressing this issue and he has some very stinging words for these arguing factions. I'm going to read you something from chapter 3 a few chapters ago. He says this to everybody. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. They have not known the way of peace. In other words, have you all forgotten that it is only through Jesus' death that you have been made right before God? You were all equally helpless in meriting God's favor through the work that you do, but he accepted you because of what Jesus did. And so he's calling them to remembrance. And that brings us up to kind of where we are today in chapter 5. So if you want to follow along with me, we're just going to kind of work our way through some of this passage. Starting with the first verse, Paul says, Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it begs the question, what does it mean to be justified? Now, I was trying to figure out, there's all kinds of complex issues with this word in the Bible, but I found a definition from someone who's far smarter than I am and much more eloquent, so I'm just going to read you his definition of justification. This is really beautiful. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, justification is reconciliation with God in the present, 
together with certain hope of salvation in the future, based on the death of Christ in the past, and all known through the gift of the Spirit. That's rather nice, isn't it? And Paul says that the outcome of justification is peace with God. Peace with God. Now, lest our minds hear the word peace and start to think of Woodstock or this sort of peace, we should mention what Paul means when he says peace. What does Paul mean by peace? Does he simply mean the absence of conflict or getting along? I think he means something more. Paul is using the word peace in the Old Testament sense of the word, which was shalom. In the Old Testament, peace is shalom. It is a very profound Hebrew term. And it was a word for peace that uh, connoted a state of restoration, abundance, well-being, completeness. One writer puts it like this, Shalom is a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as, as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, this is beautiful, Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. So Paul is saying this, if you're a disciple of Jesus, You've entrusted your life to him. Your relationship with God has a completeness to it. Things are the way they ought to be. Wow. Meaning, you can't add anything to it. It's a sealed deal. You and God are on good terms because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did to earn it. Or because you were a particularly good person. But because Jesus died for you. Now, even if you didn't believe that the Bible was true, you have to admit that that's compelling, right? You have to admit that that's compelling. Now, Paul goes on. If you want to follow along in your bulletins, he says, Through whom, he's speaking of Jesus, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Okay, now we've got to go to the beginning of that verse. He says, obtained access. We need to talk about what that means, because this is a really big idea. In the English, it's two words, obtained access. In the, in the Greek, it's one word. Um, and this was a word used in the ancient world to describe a person who was approaching a king, a, per, a person of nobility, a person of honor, who was able to enter the royal courts and approach the king. Now, in the Jewish world, it took on the meaning of somebody who was pure enough, ritually and morally, to approach the altar in the temple to offer sacrifice to God. Right? So here's the picture that Paul is painting for us when he says that we've obtained access. He's saying, you who are in Jesus, regardless of how much honor or shame you bear, have access to the royal courts of the king. You have unbridled access to God's presence. Wow, that should blow our minds. Then he goes on to say, we have the hope of sharing the glory of God. And what he is saying there is that if God has called us members of his own family now, reconciled us to himself now, we can be assured that on that day in the end, when he returns to judge the living and the dead, we will be with him for all of eternity. We will share in his glory. Now, this is not just a pie-in-the-sky future promise, okay? This actually also affects the here and now. How? Paul goes on. 
And not only that, he says, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Boast in suffering. Has any such words ever been uttered before this? Who boasts in suffering? But it's not a rejoicing and jumping up and down for joy because we you know, totaled our car or lost a family member. It's not that. It doesn't make suffering feel fun or happy. What Paul is saying is that disciples of Jesus boast even in suffering because we're so anchored in God's faithfulness. Even when we want to scream at God because we're so confused about our suffering. We're so anchored in Him. We're assured of the future that He promises. We're assured of His presence with us in suffering that it actually builds character and perseverance and even hope inside of us. Now, there's another way that having peace with God affects our lives. It affects our relationships with each other. Here's how. When you and God were estranged, God was the first to extend a hand of friendship. Even though we were in the wrong, God was the first to extend a hand of forgiveness and mercy. And out of that came a relationship full of peace. Now, this is going to be hard to hear this next part if you have some bitterness towards anybody in your life, if you have any broken relationships, it's going to be difficult to hear, but it's important for us to hear this. Because if you recognize that you've been on the receiving end of mercy that you didn't deserve, you'll be changed. You'll be changed because the one who extended that mercy to you now dwells in you. And even in the most difficult relationships, in his strength, you can forgive. You can extend mercy, even, even when the other person, maybe especially when the other person is in the wrong. Wow. You see how the gospel affects not just our relationships with God like this, it affects all of our relationships in the world. It's amazing. Now just imagine what would happen in our society if more people were transformed by this kind of power. Just think about what would happen to relationships in our society. Amazing. Now, the next part of this passage is kind of the last part we're going to focus on. It's very, very important. It's very big. It's almost as if, before he writes this, Paul says, Paul, Paul thinks this to himself, I've been saying all of this great stuff to them about what it means and the benefits of having peace with God, but I'm worried that they're going to forget why they have all of this. I'm worried they're going to forget. And so he goes on. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God, but God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. Behind all of this is God's love for humanity. A humanity that is in utter rebellion against him. God's love for you and for me. A love that is willing to die for the beloved. You see, behind this need that we all have for inner peace is really a need to be perfectly, completely loved by someone who is 
perfectly faithful in a way that no earthly lover could ever be. Paul knew this. And he knew that only God himself had proved to be that perfect, faithful lover. God proved his love for us. And that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the entire New Testament. The entire Bible summed up in one sentence right there. That's an amazing, amazing claim. Now, in a few minutes, we'll begin our Eucharistic liturgy. And as I was writing this sermon, I was thinking about our right to service in the chapel uh, and the words that we use in that liturgy. Um, and so I'll make a reference to that. I know we use right one in this chapel, but in the right to service, um, the Eucharistic liturgy begins with these words. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you have made us for yourself. A lot of us hear those words every week, and it's easy to miss the depth of meaning there. Those words are actually reminiscent of a prayer of St. Augustine's that is very well known. And he says, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, if you don't have peace with God, you'll find yourself in a state of continual restlessness. Continual restlessness. You'll get stuck on the pleasure treadmill or find things to keep yourself distracted or you'll despair of ever finding real peace. Sadly, so many people in our world are stuck on those two options. But here's the other option. This other option actually meets the deepest longings of the human heart, the human soul, and it begins to transform lives from the inside out. Maybe you know someone who doesn't have this peace. Maybe you haven't had this peace in a while. Maybe it's time for you to remember who you are and the peace and the completeness that you have in your relationship with God. And maybe it's time to share with someone else in your life the opportunity they have to have to find that peace. Let me remind you and close with these words of our Lord. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Let us pray. <laughs> Gracious Father, we thank you that in your infinite love you made us for yourself. And that although we have been turned against you, you reached out to us, offering forgiveness and mercy and peace. We thank you that because of what Jesus has done, we have completeness in our relationship with you. And one of the ways that you so powerfully remind us of that is as we come forward to the altar and, and commune with you in the sacred bread and wine that are your body and blood, we thank you for the opportunity for this intimacy, this reminder that we have peace with you. We ask your blessing over all of it in our lives this week, that the peace that we have with you would truly affect the relationships that we have with others. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.